Um, with that said, grab your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, because technically we are already out of time. Ephesians chapter 5. <laughs> so much to cover. As you're turning, you know that Paul has laid out so much for us. All the way back in chapter 1 when he said that God has given us every spiritual blessing in everything places. That was a huge blessing for us to hear. We're, this is week 23, so that was way back the first week. 23 weeks ago, we read that. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places has been given to those of us who believe. And so we are, want, we are about the business of exploring all of them, aren't we? I want to know what all of them are. I want to apply them to my life. I want to experience them. And not only that, that he says that we were chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world in chapter 1, verse 4, which is beautiful. That means before you were ever thought of, before your parents was ever thought of, before your grandparents were ever thought of in eternity's past, God, who stands outside of time, already knew you and had already chosen you in Christ Jesus. So you could never be a mistake or an afterthought or any of that. Not only did he choose you, he had predestined predestined or even it means predetermine you to be adopted as sons through Christ Jesus. Meaning that based upon his foreknowledge, standing outside of time and seeing who you would be, he predetermined that you would be adopted as a son or daughter in Christ Jesus. And therefore, the Bible says also in chapter 1, verse 6, that he has accepted you in the beloved. So you have been accepted, which is good news. That's good news. I mean, I remember, you know, when kids didn't, didn't get picked for the games back when we were little, you know. And, um, but we have all been chosen, picked, and accepted. So that's good news. Not only that, we've been sealed with the whole, we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ and sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says we were dead in sins and trespasses, chapter 2. But he has quickened us. He has made us alive. Isn't that good news? Yes. The Bible says we were separated afar off. But now God is doing a new work in which he has broken down the middle wall of separation. He has taken away the hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. And he's building a brand new building in his flesh of one believer being those who are in Christ. Where there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, but one in Christ Jesus. Amen. That's good news. All getting to him the same way by the blood of Christ. Nobody being any more accepted, desired, or spiritual than anybody else. And he's building this new build, building on the foundation of the, the uh, ministry of the apostles and the prophets. This new building called the church of which he will inhabit. And so in chapter 3 we learn, the Bible says that in chapter 3, that he will take this new building, the church. He will use her, that's us collectively, to display his manifold wisdom to the angelic hosts for them all to see this beautiful, wonderful thing that he has created, his masterpiece, his workmanship, his poem, if you will, which is the church itself. And he is so blessed and he loves us and he's done so much for us. So as we went into chapter four, we begin to realize that because of that, Paul says, hey, walk worthy of that calling. Maintain the unity within the body. And the bond of peace because the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace because we need to do that because of what he's doing in us. So he wants us to work now, work some things out so that we can stay unified and that we can thrive and live together the right way. So then he says, so then it's been organized, chapter 4, verse 11, and that he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? To equip the saints, all of us, for the work of the ministry we've all been called into. The ministry of glorifying him in this world, drawing people to who he is so they can see him through how we live before them. And so that is the process that we're all in now. And so with that, we learn that we need to put off concerning the old man 
and walk in the newness of life. Amen? So we've seen a lot of those things. We need to walk in love. We need to walk in light. We need to put away sexual immorality. We need to walk in wisdom. And then we also, remember, need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Y'all remember all of these things, right? Yes, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we got to verse 21 of chapter 5, we realized that in the same thought of being filled with the Holy Spirit, he then says, submitting to one another, notice, in the fear of God. Can you believe that? If you are spirit-filled, then you are also one who has learned to submit, which means to place yourself uh, up under the authority of another in rank as in military fashion. It's actually, if you remember, a military term. Y'all remember that from last week? So we are now, listen, all of us have now learned that there's this thing that we call Christian protocol, which we're now looking at. And in verse 21, we saw what Christian protocol looks like within the church. You can listen to last week's teaching. Then also last week in verse 22, we began to look at it. It it was within the uh, Christian protocol within the Christian family. We saw the role of the wife in verse 22. Today, we're going to look at the role of the husband in verse 23 through 33, but we won't finish. And then eventually, we'll also see Christian protocol within the family as it relates to the plan for children, chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. And then eventually we'll see in chapter 6, 5 through 9, within the marketplace, in the employment arena, and all that kind of stuff. So today we're going to look at the role of the husband. And since I got in so much trouble this week, last week, I think I would um, try to start off a little lighter this week. <laughs> and tell you about a story. Maybe this can be helpful. A newly married couple. So excited. Husband rushed home to work because he was... He was a newlywed, you know, and we, I still rush on, by the way, from work after 18 years. I still do. Um, he rushed on from work, and his wife, she was so excited. She, she sat him down and gave him a plate of food. She was so excited. She said, she said, honey, I learned how to cook two new dishes today. She says, I learned how to make meatloaf and banana pudding today. Well, the husband looked at the plate, and guys never do this. He looked at the plate, and then he looked up at his wife and says, well, which one is this? <laughs> yeah, that's rough. Because you look, if you're from the South, you know that banana pudding ain't supposed to look like meatloaf and meatloaf like banana pudding. But, you know, in the, in the, in the fashion of a, a missionary even, if you will, I would suggest guys never do this because you want to encourage your wife if she's excited about cooking. You want to encourage that whole thought process. So what you have to do is you have to pray and then eat the food. <laughs> Say it's good and leave it at that. I'm just trying to tell you over the years uh, it works out. I could tell you some stories, um, not in my home, but <laughs> my wife can cook. But um, I, I don't have time for any of that anyway. Um, here's another one just to make sure you all are ready for today. If you went to the marriage conference, you heard this one. Two guys... Joe and Bob, they were good friends and worked together. You know how guys like to talk at work, and, and they were talking. And, and Bob, uh, he, uh, Joe asked Bob if he would come over and help him with his deck after work. And so they made a decision they were going to do it that day. So after work, uh, Bob went straight over with Joe to his place. So when they got to the door, Joe went straight to his wife, gave her a hug, and told her how beautiful she was and how much he had missed her at work. And when it was time for supper... 
He complimented his wife's cooking, kissed her, and told her how much he loved her. Once they had finished eating, they were out back working on the deck, and Bob told Joe that he was so surprised that he made so much of a fuss over his wife. And Joe said, well, yeah, you know, he said, I've been doing this for about six months now, and it has revived my marriage. Things are better than they have ever been. So Bob was like, whoa, but maybe I should try this when I get home. So when he got home, he gave his wife a massive hug, kissed her, and told her how much he loved her. And his wife burst out in tears. Bob was confused. What's wrong, honey? And she said, this has been the worst day of my life. First, little Billy fell off his bike and twisted his ankle. Then the washing machine broke and flooded the basement. And now you come home drunk. <laughs> oh, Lord. I like that one. So let's review the role of a wife. Verse 22. Look at it with me. We'll read it. Then we'll come back and we'll pray. For the sake of time, I'm going to let you stay seated. Notice it says, wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church and, and, and the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife, his own wife, as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father, we do thank you this morning for your word, Lord. It is pure, it is, it is wonderful, it is profitable for us, Lord. And as we turn our hearts to it now, Lord, I pray that you would move upon us, taking away the cares and the burdens of this life and this world from our hearts and from our minds, that you would remove even the distraction from the room, any distractions, Lord, that you would have your way with us, that you would take this hour, Lord, as your own, and that you would speak to us and minister to us individually as well as collectively. Lord, minister to the single person in the room today. Minister to the married person in the room today, Lord. Lord, move upon us by your spirit. Reveal your scripture to our hearts and then change us through it, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You remember as we talked about submission and we found out that it was a military term, which means to arrange yourself under the authority of another. We talked about the fact that it doesn't mean that you do that because you're inferior to the other person in any way. Remember that, right? In fact, submission does not mean to be silent. In fact, it doesn't even mean 
that the other person is smarter. Wives, you submit to your husband not because he's smarter. In fact, you may be smarter and nobody say amen, ladies. <laughs> hey, you may even change the oil better. You may not, look, the husband may not even be the strongest. I mean, you might could, you know, take him in a fight, you know. I mean, <laughs> unfortunately, that happens sometimes, you know. Things like that can happen. But it, it means none of that. It, it, in fact, it means submission in the sense of uh, a sub of a mission, if you think about it. Remember, I told you that every Christian marriage should have a mission itself. In fact, the mission of marriage is to obey and glorify God. And we're going to talk about the fact that marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. In other words, the wife is going to put herself under the mission of God by arranging herself under the leadership of her husband because it's the way God has planned it. This is the way that is to be. You see, both the husband and the wife are called to die to self. We're going to talk about that today. Submission is the way the wife does that. Both the husband and the wife are called to sacrifice. Submission is the way that the wife sacrifices. Both the husband and the wife are called to see their marriage as a model of Jesus' relationship with the church. Submission on the behalf of the wife is the way that she honors that model and honors her Lord. Both the husband and the wife are called to honor the order of creation and submission is the way the wife begins to fulfill even that and so the interesting thing is this in my opinion women must be very very careful how they choose their husbands instead of looking for an attractive man instead of looking for a wealthy man or instead of looking for a romantic man a woman must first look for a man that she can actually respect G. Campbell Morgan recalls the story of a older woman in the church who was never married. And, and when asked why you never married, she said this, I never met a man who could master me. That sounds prideful, but it actually makes a lot of sense. She said, I never met a man who I respected enough to place myself under his authority. Because that's what submission is all about. In fact, single ladies, one of the things you should ask a young man who asked you to marry him is what is the mission that we have been called to go on in our marriage if I were to marry you. What has God called you to do? If he can't answer that, then, you know, it's time to uh, maybe put that on hold. I told some young ladies, and I'm, I'm getting off track and ahead of myself. I told some young ladies over in the youth room. Well, the young men were there too. And I told them, I said, he needs to know where he's going in the Lord before you uh, submit yourself up under his leadership. And the first time you see him he can't make a decision and he runs to mama uh, before you get married. That's the day the marriage should be called off until he gets that right. <laughs> There's some things. Oh, we had a wonderful day in the youth that day. <laughs> Wives, you should challenge your husband with the question of what is our mission? And if he can't answer it, then pray with him that he would go and find out. What is the mission that God has placed our marriage and our home under? What have we been called to do? I mean, that is very, 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 very important. Now, look, here's the thing. I want to be very clear. I didn't touch on this last week, so I need to clear it up today before we move on into the husband's role. So I need you to understand this. There are situations, wife, where you are excused from being under the or submitting to or being under the authority of your husband. Let me give you three of them. Number one, when he asks you to sin against God. 
at that point, you are no longer required to submit under his authority if it's truly a sin. And that, now, it doesn't mean that you get to say, well, you know, I don't like the decision you're making, so I ain't going to do it. That's different. That's your opinion. And that's not what God wants you to do because then you can use that excuse for anything, <laughs> any disagreement. But if it's sin against God, you are not required to, to, to submit up under that authority. Here's an a even more clear one. When the husband is physically abusive in a way that endangers your safety or even the safety of your children, you're no longer obligated to submit up under his authority as a daughter of God. For many reasons, because that's not how the Lord treats his, his wife. In fact, one of the reasons we believe in pre-trib rapture is because we don't see Jesus beating his wife. We see him calling, saying that you're not appointed to rap, but to obtain salvation. And we don't have to go into that now. But one of the things I need you to know, I said this at the marriage conference. I haven't, I don't think I've ever said it here. And I need to say it to clear this up very clearly, okay? Because even a few years ago, there was a, a prayer request that hinted towards a man being physically abusive to his wife, and there was no name. And the elders and the pastors, we couldn't determine where it came from. I even went to my wife and asked her, had you heard the hint of any of this in the women's ministry? And we couldn't, couldn't find out. So we just prayed for it, and I know we trust in faith that God dealt with it. But I do want to say this. At this church, at least, at Calvary Chapel of Clayton, if, if your husband is physically abusive, he's hitting you. And you need to report that to leadership. Um, because if he's, if he's big and bad enough to hit you, he needs to be big and bad enough to hit me. Because I'm going to confront him. And even, guy, if you're hitting your wife and you think you can beat me, well, you're going to have to beat me first. Then you're going to have to go through ten other guys. Because we are going to whip your tail. <laughs> and so... Um, and I want to say that very clearly because it could be better that you leave our church than for us to find out that you're beating your wife while you're here. Not going to make an apology for that one either. Okay. That's in Christian love, by the way. Yeah. So, yeah, I, that needs to be understood. Now, when it comes to like mental and verbal abuse, those gray areas, listen, every marriage has its arguments. And so, you know, you can't, everything ain't abuse, you know. But it needs to be that if there is really abuse, then, then you're no longer uh, required to submit under that authority. And the third one that's as obvious is when he breaks the marriage bond by adultery. Adultery and sexual immorality, fornication, all the stuff you want to think about. And, and wife, if you can't bear that, and that goes even for the husband actually, but if the wife can't bear that, more so for the wife I should say. And we'll talk about why down here in a minute. This is my opinion. More so for the wife. Because Christ would never do that to us. I will never leave you nor forsake you, he says. Now, the interesting thing is, at that moment, that bond is broken. And I've seen a lot of people forgive, which I think is so beautiful within. And that is the best, actually. Forgiveness is the highest level of Christ-likeness that we can have. But God does permit uh, uh, for the, the marriage to break up in those situations. And so those are three areas where sexual immorality, infidelity, uh, physical abuse, or asking you to sin are areas where you no longer are required to submit. I wanted to get those things out there because I didn't cover them last week. Now, today we're going to look at the role of the husband and we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at the theology of husband, the theology of the husband in verse 23 and 24. And then we'll look at the function of the husband in verse 25 through 33. And we won't finish all of that today. In fact, I'm already out of time. Look at verse 23. He said, it says here, for the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church and the savior of the body. 
So the first thing we see is the role of the husband. The role of the husband is established by God. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife. We see that. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. And that is something that has been established by God. So then that woman will arrange or place herself under the authority and leadership of that man because it is established by God. And she's fallen in rank where she's been assigned by God, by creation, within the army of God. Does that make sense? And it has to be order in order for us to not only represent him properly, but to accomplish things. See, this, this headship is a biblical idea that speaks of authority, and it has the meaning, listen, that the man has the appropriate responsibility to lead and the matching accountability that comes with it. And see, that's what the headship actually means. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says that a woman should have a symbol of authority over her head because of the angels. In other words, Paul was saying even in the spiritual realm, and I could take this into a lot of places, but even in the spiritual realm as angels who have been sent forth to minister on behalf of those who will inherit salvation, as well as the fallen angels which are looking to disrupt and tear things apart. But when they see things orderly, it, they have less opportunity to even do that. And what, they, what God is saying is stay in the order I've called you to be in. It's even for your spiritual protection. And see, it's the idea of headship we see throughout Scripture. It means that the man has a responsibility to lead and he bears the accountability. We see that clearly in the book of Genesis chapter 3 when God showed up in the garden after they had sinned. And the Bible was very clear. Adam sinned and Eve was deceived. So when God showed up, he says, Adam, where are you? As opposed to Adam and Eve. Why? Because he see Adam, listen, Eve is seen in Adam by God. And God called his head, the, the, the one who was over, the one who bore the responsibility for what was going on. He called him out to report to him. And, 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 and this was what God desired for Adam to take responsibility. But Adam also had to bear the accountability for it. I often think of it in this way. If God, guys, was to show up at your house today. And say, I came to see how things are going. We can't be like Adam and said, Lord, the woman you gave me. <laughs> Listen, we are both responsible for everything that's going on in our home and in our marriage, as well as we are accountable for it. And there are no excuses. That, that's why as a husband, I'm called to be a leader by the simple fact of God placed me in that position with creation and he blessed me with a wife. And so he called me to lead and to be responsible and accountable for everything that is going on. So therefore, I cannot be, guys, you cannot be like the TV dad or maybe you even grew up with one of these dads who basically sits in the recliner with the remote and that's his role. That's not the biblical picture of a husband. That's a worldly picture of a husband. But within the church, no, we are called to be involved and aware of everything that's going on. The problems, the needs, the issues, the, 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 the concerns. We are to visit bedrooms and see how things look, meaning the children's bedrooms. We are to be aware of what's coming into the home. We are to be aware of what's going on in the home. We have to take inventory. We have to be the one to encourage, to point back to the word, to, to be a real leader in the home. Because we bear both responsibility and accountability. And when the Lord calls us to give an account, we can't point fingers. 
the Jewish rabbis used to teach that the, the first question that would be asked of a man when he entered into heaven and stood before his Lord was, did you take a wife? Did you found a family? And then how did you do with that? You would be called into accountability for what you did as a leader of your wife and of your family. And this is why, guys, you should make a, a good choice in wife because you want one that's a ride or die chick. And she got your back and she's there with you. She's praying, you know. <laughs> it's gotta be. A young man asked me after the first service because I said uh, that I would give uh, date advice. And he came and he asked me some questions. I gave him some good advice. I don't have time to go into it now. So the next part of the role, I'm sorry, we'll cut that out. His role, listen, the role of the husband is an earthly type of a heavenly reality. Just like the tabernacle, for instance, in the Old Testament foreshadows Christ in heaven and the throne room in heaven. Notice it says, as also Christ is head of the church and the savior of the body. In other words, the woman should submit to her husband because of the relationship that she has with God and to please God. And because it's a model of the union between Jesus and the church. It's an earthly type. And so then the husband begins to, to form, if you will, a type when we think about the theology of a husband. This is the reason the enemy seeks to bring division into marriage. The wife is struggling to submit. The husband is struggling to lead and love. And the marriage is being attacked from all sides. And many of them are calling it quits. It's because the marriage union of all relationships on the planet ever created by God is the only one that resembles the real relationship between Christ and the church even more so than children. So then the role of the husband becomes very majestic. Notice it says here again. The husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And notice, and he is, capital H, Jesus, the Savior of the body. Now, this becomes a problem for us. Because now, guys, we look at that verse and say, well, now I'm, you know, I'm good. You know, I, I get a little break here because Christ is the Savior. I can't be the Savior. But the word is not talking about salvation at all. And notice down in verse 28, so husbands ought to love their wife. We'll get to that in a minute, but that so means in like manner. And so we are to imitate Christ in everything we do as husbands. And so this word savior here means deliverer, preserver, but not in salvation. Obviously we can't do that, but deliverer and preserver is what it means. The name was given in ancient times to princes and kings and, and generals and men who had done something great to benefit his country. In other words, we are called to be the preserver and the protector even of our wives. It's very interesting when I go out of town, my wife, uh, you know, it, it gets interesting. She said it doesn't feel the same. And so when I come back home, you know, and I get in my bed and the bed's lumpy, and I'm like, what's wrong with the bed? And I reach and there's weapons that's been stashed everywhere. <laughs> Because I'm gone, and so she's got weapons. I mean, there's knives and hammers and <laughs> something, stuff she done rigged up and whatnot. And because, listen, guys, we become the savior of the body. Listen to me. Let me give you a picture of it. Jesus, John chapter 18. Look at Jesus. This is one of my favorite examples, and sometimes we can miss it. Because when you watch the passion of the Christ, they didn't capture this scene. This scene has too much going on. Let's, let's look at it. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. The soldiers are coming with swords. They're going to arrest Jesus. Jesus, therefore, John 18, 4, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, because he's God, he knows everything, went forward 
and said to them, he's speaking to the guys with the swords and the clubs, whom are you seeking? Now, catch the picture. Jesus goes forward, leaving his disciples, his bride, behind. He puts himself between the oncoming danger and his bride. And he addresses the danger, whom are you seeking? They answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, and this is very dangerous for him to even say this, Jesus says, I am he. Jesus being God is saying, I am he. That's a very interesting statement. And Judas, who portrayed him, also stood with them. Notice verse 6. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. They were literally knocked down by the power of his word. Now what Jesus is doing here is he's flexing, if you will, his position as husband. He's the husbandman. He's the bridegroom of the bride, right? Now they fell to the ground. And Jesus is putting them on notice. And he says, look, talk to me. Don't worry about them. He says to them again. He says, then I, I, he asked them again, whom are you seeking? Now he's got their attention. And they said, then now, you got to just get the scene. The disciples are behind Jesus. Jesus is standing there address, addressing the soldiers. And his soldiers are laying on the ground looking up at Jesus like, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I have answered. Jesus answers, I have told you that I am he. Notice this. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. And notice why, verse 9, that the sand might be fulfilled, which he has spoken previously in the previous chapter. Jesus says, of those whom you gave me, when Jesus was praying to his father, he was saying, dad, of those whom you have gave me, I have lost. How many? I love that. The picture of the husband. He goes before, he addresses the danger, and he makes sure the wife is safe. And he's teaching us in this. This is the picture of Jesus being Savior in the sense of preserver of the body, if you will. Deliverer and preserver, protector of the body. So then the husband's role becomes very, very majestic because now he steps into the role of being the preserver and the protector of his wife, knowing her needs and where she's at spiritually and physically and emotionally and protecting her from the oncoming dangers, even knowing when there are times when he needs to step in between her and the things that's going on. The husband makes sure that everybody knows that that wife belongs to somebody. He shows up occasionally on the job or he sends stuff. He makes sure that he shows up occasionally when she's doing things in her life that, that, that take her away from the home. And he's present. He's making his, himself known to her throughout the day. He is her redeemer and protector as it relates to this life. And here's the reason why. The reason why is because he shows up to be a representative of Christ in the marriage union to fulfill the picture. You follow me? This is why the Bible says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing, but goes beyond that, it says, and obtains what? Any guys know? Favor, Favor from the Lord. Amen. That means that because you represent him, not only has he blessed you with the bride, he gives you a little extra favor so you can represent him in the marriage union. In other words, he's going to give you everything you need, guys, to make the marriage a blessing as you're representing him. Now, we move now into the function of a husband, and we got like less than 10 minutes, so stay, stay, stay focused. Verse 25, husbands, 
and get into the function. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Let's stop there for a moment. Husbands are called, listen, to be a physical reflection of the love of Christ. Now, I got to say this. We got to basically ignore everything that you've seen in the world, all the stuff you've experienced, all the books, Christian books that have been written. All that stuff is really good. We learn a lot of good things. Even when you come to me for counseling, we do cover communication. We talk about resolving conflict. We talk about roles and responsibilities. We get into all of that stuff. But biblically, there are some things that we need to capture from this section of Scripture that are important. And one is that we men need to be a reflection of the love of Christ in our marriages. Definition of love. Okay, listen to me very carefully. This is a biblical definition of love, okay? To take on some level of care and encouragement of someone else based on a personal decision, regardless of any return of love or favorable response. To take on some level of care and encouragement of someone else based on a personal decision, regardless of any return of, a, of love or favorable response. In other words, biblically, you see it this way. Romans chapter 5. It says that and God and Christ demonstrated his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died from the, for the ungodly. Therefore, biblical love is an action. It can be seen. Your feelings alone do not matter in the process. Because your feelings can be ruled by emotion they can be tossed like a boat in the sea. Your feelings can change with every argument, every disappointment, every disagreement. Your feelings can change based on a person's physical appearance and many other things. Many marriages actually break up today because physical appearance changes. All of those things can change. But because, listen, this is why, guys, just listen. This is why you got to be careful when you go into this thing called marriage, biblical marriage. In other words, we have been called to reflect Christ and how we love our wives, meaning that no matter what she's doing, no matter how she responds, even if she doesn't return any affection or love back to you, you have been called to love her right where she's at right now and to endure until God brings about a change. That's the picture of Christ in the marriage. It needs to be something that is carefully prayed through before you go into such a, a commitment. Biblical love is very, very different than the things that we see today. And look, the world laughs at us because our divorce rate is just like the world. You know, you're, when you were dating and you love one another and maybe you wrote your names, carved it in the tree, in the heart. Anybody here ever done that? I got nobody first. So that's, okay, one brother, Eric's done it. There you go. Thank you, Eric. You know, but trees can be cut down. So maybe you, you, you built your first home together and you, you wrote your names and love each other in the slab, the concrete slab, and that's nice. And, but, you know, houses can be demolished. But biblical love, listen, is that love which exists within the one flesh union of marriage and it is written into eternity. Now, how do we know? Because God is the witness of it. 
You see, here's the thing. Whenever I perform a wedding, I tell the couple, I say, it really doesn't matter if there's 200 people in the room on the day of your wedding. The only witness in the room that matters is God. Malachi chapter 2 on the screen. Malachi chapter 2. God is talking to Israel. I'm going to read it. I'm giving a little context. He's talking to Israel. The, the, the priest and the men of Israel had began to, if you will, walk away from the Lord. They were giving their hearts over to idolatry. They were divorcing their wives and taking on wives of foreign gods. And notice what God says. God says, look at it with me on the screen. Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. So God is making an accusation against them. You've dealt treacherously and there's been an abomination. Well, what is it? Well, he says, Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign God. In other words, he's profaned God's holy institution, which is marriage. So God says, first, here's the accusation. An abomination has happened and you've dealt treacherously. And how? Because you have profaned my holy institution, which I love. Marriage is a holy institution, which God proclaims as something that he has ordained and loved because it, it shows a picture throughout the Bible, Old Testament, the picture of God being the bridegroom and Israel being the bride. New Testament, Christ being the bridegroom and the church being the bride. He goes on to say, he has married the daughter of a foreign God. He says, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts? And this is the second thing you, you do. He says, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. Why? Because they've done this thing. The women of Israel were weeping and crying. They've been abandoned. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. God is cut off. In other words, the New Testament says, husbands, honor your wives as unto the weaker, weaker vessel that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, I don't like that. Yet you say, verse 14, for what reason? In other words, God, what you talking about? What's the issue here? And it goes on to say, because the Lord, here it is. Here's the issue. The Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by, notice, covenant. And he's going to go on to say he hates divorce by covenant because it's a violent act. It rips a one flesh body apart. To God, it's, it's, it's violent. It's ugly, divorce. He says, but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? Because he seeks godly offspring. He seeks to be glorified through the marriage union. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Now, this struck fear in my heart when I first read it as a young husband. Then I read where Peter says, my prayers can be handled if I don't honor my wife. I'm out of time. Y'all get me a few more minutes. And it struck fear. Like, man, this thing is deeper than I thought. They didn't tell me none of this in premarital. <laughs> I'm in trouble now. If I make any mistakes, man, it's like God is like, oh, I'm watching you. She's a gift. She's my daughter. She's your spiritual sibling, sister, and me for eternity. So now this thing is dangerous. So now we've gotten into something that we may not have known about, many of us. And now we got to deal with the aftermath of getting it right. You see, God has called us, guys, to love our wives in such an unconditional way 
that at some point, as we get better and better at it, at some point, they come to know more about the love of Christ through what we're doing. When I uh, was teaching at the marriage conference, one of the things I did is I went around talking to different ladies in the church, and most of y'all didn't know what I was doing, and I was listening, hearing your voice, and I even talked to my wife, and I was, I was working all of the things that y'all were saying into my message to quote the ladies, because all the men were teaching at the conference, and they didn't have their wives up there with them, and I wanted the voice of the ladies to come through my teaching too, the voice of the wife. And so I quoted one uh, lady from our church, and I'll dumb it way down so I don't uh, expose who she is, but she was telling the story. My wife and I were having a meal with her and her husband, and she was telling a story about this rough thing. She was going through a rough time in her life, and it was really affecting her, and it was, it was affecting her so much, it was even affecting how she was treating her husband. And her husband chose to just love her quietly by being there for her and supporting and helping her through the, the situation and the season she was going through. Kind of like the Lord does us when we're going through things. And he comes, right? And she said one day it all clicked. And she, she understood that she could see the love of Christ finally in the face of her husband. Because he chose to just love her where she was at. And not respond to anything that she might have been going through and letting it get to him. And so this is the thing. In order for us to do this thing that we've been uh, by covenant ordained to do, we have to put aside our selfishness because as husbands, there are things that we want from our wives. And there are times when we may not get those things or we may want her to be a certain way and there are times when she may not be that way. And at that moment, we are called to listen. Listen, here's the thing. We're called to ignore all of that. And just love her. Because we, listen, are the reflection of Christ in the marriage and in the home. Not only that, the husband functions by sacrificing himself for his wife. Notice again, verse 25, the husband, husbands love your wife just as Christ loved the church. And notice, gave himself for her. In the Greek, this word gave means to give into the hands of another. To give over into the power of of someone else and it speaks of the fact listen it speaks of the fact that Jesus did this in the sense that Jesus says nobody takes my life but I lay it down and I have the power to raise it back up y'all remember when Jesus said that so what it is is Jesus is calling every husband to surrender himself because this is where we submit to surrender ourselves to the Lord to take the bride the gift that was given to us and to love her completely right where she's at. And to do it consistently, even if the change that we desire to see is not immediate. Because often it will not be immediate. We've been called to do this just like our Lord did. The Bible says, Philippians 2, 5 and 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That means that he was God, but he didn't consider it robbery to set his Godship, his deity aside for a minute, but made himself notice of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of a man, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, men, you have to be submitted to your marriage, not the golf course. You've been called to lead. You have to be aware. You have to know what's going on. You have to be involved. You have to unconditionally love her, even when it just doesn't seem like it's producing any fruit immediately. This is what we've been called to do as men. Now, I'm out of time. 
So we're going to complete these things when we come back together. But the husband has been called into the greatest form of leadership on earth and within the body of Christ. We bear such a responsibility and accountability. And we got to do this better. And I know my mighty men of valor are already stepping up to it. Right, men? There it goes, a base, more base than the first service. Let's get it better than that, right, men? Yeah, All right, we're going to work on it. <laughs> um, and I'm right there with you. As the worship team comes up, let me pray for your marriages. And we're over time. You've got to get your children. We'll pick it up in verse 26 next time. But bow your heads and... Uh, Open your hearts. Lord, we do thank you this morning for the word that you've given us. Lord, I do pray for every marriage in this room, Lord, and pray for every man in this room, Lord, and every, every, every husband who has a wife because you did promise, Lord, in your word that you gave us favor and you give us grace that you do not leave us, that you even intercede daily for us, Lord. So I pray that you would give every man in this room, every married man, the favor and the grace that he needs, Lord God. Give him the conviction in his own heart. Walk him through how to do this, how to perform these things that we have seen. How to demonstrate his love for his wife. How to practice that on a daily basis, Lord. I do pray that the wife would respond. I pray, Lord, that you would move in the marriages, that you would strengthen these marriages, Lord God, that you would protect them, let none of them fail. I pray that every marriage in this room, Lord God, would be revitalized, Lord, that over the next weeks and months and years, Lord God, it would just be growing more and more into something that glorifies you, a picture of who you are. Let us as men set aside our selfish desires and embrace that which you've put before us and let us do it, Lord God, with diligence with endurance as you strengthen us, Lord. I also pray for the single men in the room and the single women, both, Lord. I pray that you would give them understanding, Lord, that when it comes their time, if they're going to be married, to be married, Lord, I pray that you would give them wisdom and how to proceed in that, Lord, that they would not choose unwisely, but that they would hear your voice and see your leading and you would provide the right person, Lord. Let our Christian marriages within our congregation, Lord, be blessings to you, as well as the rest of the body of Christ and even to the communities and places that they go. Lord, I pray that you would go before all of us now as we leave this place today, Lord God, that you would keep us in our homes, in our cars, uh, on the roads and in the classrooms, the workplaces, all of the marketplace, everywhere we go, Lord God, be with us. We love you. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we say together, saints. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand? Let's sing.